0: Ancient Faith Radio presents Verse by Verse with Father Gordon Walker, a journey through the Book of Romans. Father Gordon is Pastor Emeritus of St. Ignatius Orthodox Church in Franklin, Tennessee. He is the retired Director of New Church Development for the Department of Missions and Evangelism in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese. And he currently is a board member for the Friends of Indonesia, supporting the Indonesian Orthodox Church. So let's go to the home of Father Gordon Walker as we begin our study in the Book of Romans on verse by verse.
1: We are still in Romans chapter one, but we will finish it up in this study. And uh, I want to pick up and reread again verses 16 and 17, Uh, because in a sense, this is the theme of the book of Romans, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And it's very important that we keep this in our mind, because the next at least three lessons, including this one and maybe four, we're going to be dealing with a whole lot of the dark side, because Paul paints that picture in the latter part of Romans 1 and all of Romans 2 and a portion of Romans 3 of the great tragedy of human sinfulness and all that it brings on to people. I've never seen any Christian writing of any kind that even matches St. Paul's ability to describe these things without getting lurid or you know, sensual or anything like that. He just lays out what sin is and what it does and the tragic consequences that sin brings in everybody's life, but especially those who devote their whole life to the practice of a sinful life. So let's read again these two verses that give us the theme of the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Not that the Jew was, by the way, somehow supposed to get a privilege that others couldn't have. But because the Jewish nation had been that means, that conduit, so to speak, that God chose to bring his truth into the world through the writing of the Old Testament scriptures and a great deal of the New Testament scripture. Actually, virtually all of the scriptures were written by Jews. They have been a great blessing to the world. Therefore they were the ones who first received the enlightenment about Christ. And it was their responsibility then to take that truth about the son of god who had become incarnate in human flesh through the virgin mary that truth and all the realities and blessings that come to the earth and come to the peoples of the world that was to be taken first by the jews and then preached everywhere and in in essence that what that is what happened the surprising thing is that saint paul was called to preach to the gentiles And it was the Gentiles that took up the gospel message and began to spread it. And they received it with such joy that there were multitudes of Gentiles that were converted. And little by little over time, Jews began to drop away from Christianity. And, of course, many of the Jewish leaders fought against the Christian faith. So there have always been Christian Jews, though. Jews who embraced Christ as their Messiah and their Savior, and almost always they have a tremendous power and force when they teach and preach. I've met Jewish Christian preachers, and I've read often about the the result of their ministries, uh, and it's happened all through church history. Some of the great theologians were Jews who had come to Christ, and they became powerful theologians in the ancient church so let's go on with verse 17 for in it that is in the gospel of christ the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith and i don't want to labor this point i've already talked about it several times in the introductory lessons here but Faith always is the basis for coming to God, even in the Old Testament. Abraham is called the father of all who believe. He was a man of faith. He practiced his faith uh, in a remarkable way with all the handicaps that one would have had in that ancient time with not near the kind of holy books that we have the the scriptures both the old and new testaments yet he was a great man of faith so paul calls him in romans 4 the father of all who believe so in that sense we're all jews <laughs> we all have as our father abraham who is the father of the jewish nation all right let's go on now with verse 18. now paul is going to turn to throw light on the dark side. He's going to explain what goes on when men rebel against God, when they refuse to receive the truth, when they take the truth and then harden their heart against it in spite of the fact that they have once been enlightened. So he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I pointed this out to you last time because we did go through this verse. I I wanted to tie it on to the previous two verses to see that in contrast to the blessing of the righteousness of God, there is the wrath of God that must be confronted if one does not choose to receive faith and live by faith. There was a statement here that I wanted to point out to you, here in verse 8, when he speaks of the wrath of God, the the notes at the bottom of the page in the Orthodox Study Bible say the wrath of God is his righteous and holy judgment, and we discussed this last week, these next uh, words. It involves no loss of temper or self-control. That is, God doesn't lose his temper and go on a temper tantrum in his wrath. It is calm and impartial, free from emotion and bias, and is based on the truth. That's a tremendous statement about the wrath of God. I don't think that a lot of, certainly of Protestant preachers, ever understood that about the wrath of God. They sort of see, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards' uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, God's just going to do awful things to you if, if you don't repent and flee to Christ. Well, that is not what Paul is saying. The wrath of God is his righteous and holy judgment. And he has a good reason for pronouncing that judgment on human beings. Who have refused all the avenues that he provides for their escape from sin and the results of sinfulness. God has made abundant provision to escape from our sin and and the results of our sinfulness. But if we don't take that avenue, then the result is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God involves no loss of temper or self-control on God's part. It is calm and impartial. And then it is free from emotion and bias and based on the truth. Keep that in mind. His wrath is his fair and unbiased judgment for the consequences of a person's deeds and the way they have lived. All right, let's move on. Notice right off the bat in verse 18, he gives one of the biggest reasons for the wrath of God. And that is that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, to suppress the truth, what does that presuppose? How can you suppress the truth? You have to have been given the truth to suppress it. If you're totally ignorant of the truth, you can't suppress the truth. To suppress the truth is to resist and put down and... Push away something that's been made plain to you. All right, now keep that in mind because we're going to see in just a few moments that God makes plain the most important things about himself to all human beings. There is no human being on the face of the earth that does not receive sufficient enlightenment that if they followed that truth, they would be saved. Wow, that's a strong statement. I know there are probably some people who will take issue with me on that. But notice what St. Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Notice, the knowledge of God is manifest within them. We'll find out more in chapter 2 that this is the conscience. There's an extreme minority of people who seem not to have any conscience in their life. There are sociopaths and violent murderers and people that just don't have a conscience about their evil. I'm just saying there is no human being That has not been given light from God. That's clear in what St. Paul says. Because what may be known of God is manifest or shown. When you manifest something, you show it. You make it clear. It is manifest in them, which is speaking of their conscience, if nothing else. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, so creation, besides conscience, we have creation here. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, that's a lot to say in one verse. <laughs> Look what, he, what God does through creation itself and today when we walked out of church and the sky was so blue and the sun was so bright such a beautiful beautiful day and we see the creation around us we have so much light given to us all of us do and there is no one according to saint paul that does not have truth manifested to them even from their childhood and through creation God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, his power, his maintenance of crea- of the world around us. Frankly, I, I think we ought to take care of it, and I've been a conservationist all of my life, from my youth. And so, all of these things about God's invisible attributes are clearly seen because of creation, being understood by the things that are made or that have been created, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now, this is really a step forward. I think that the Trinity is revealed in nature. I believe that's what Paul is saying here. Certainly, certain aspects of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are shown in nature around us. And I don't want to labor or belabor this because we could get into long discussions about it. Uh, uh, but just to point out that Paul is saying people are without excuse. They can't say, but I didn't know anything about God. There will never be anyone who can stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, I never knew anything about God. Because although they knew God, verse 21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. That's the problem. They didn't give glory to God when they knew him and they saw him all around them, and they weren't thankful. Believe me, these are two of the most important things of life. We should always give honor to God. Glorify him, praise him, thank him. These go hand in hand, thankfulness and glorifying God. To glorify God is to speak of his majesty, his power, his Godhead, and all of the things that are revealed to us in nature around us and by our conscience. And if we give thanks for the smallest things that the Lord blesses us with, Friendships, just the maintenance of our life, our health, our strength, our, the food we eat, everything. We give thanks for that. Instead of taking praise for it for ourselves, we offer the praise to God and give Him thanks. Mm-hmm. So it says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, when people take the things that God has shown them, or revealed to them, and they twist it, and they resist it, and they harden their heart against it, and suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says up in verse 18, when that happens, then what happens is that they, their hearts become darkened and their hearts become hardened. Now, listen to me. One of the worst, worst things that can happen to us is for our hearts to become hardened. There is a lot in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, about the hardened heart, the heart that can't receive God's voice or God's revelation and God's truth. We become too hardened. We're not in a position to receive it. And so, He says here, professing to be wise, they became fools. I I used to think, especially after I'd been through college and seminary, and then I got on the campus at Ohio State University, and I ran up against professors who were extremely anti-Christian. In fact, we had a man at Ohio State, at that time was the head of the Education Department and he taught an introductory class to education that all people who wanted to become a teacher had to take and the first thing he would do he would pull just sort of a stunt I guess you'd say he'd walk in to class on the first day, and he'd have a cheap copy of a Bible that he'd bought. He'd say, I don't want to hear anything from any of you about this book. You may not quote from the Bible in any of your papers. And then he would just take it and rip it apart. And then he'd go over and toss that out the window. And he was doing that every quarter. Well, we had a man who had been in Vietnam and who was a career military guy, and he was a captain. And he had been assigned to Ohio State to instruct the ROTC. And he decided he also wanted to take some courses. And he he was considering getting an, an ancillary degree in teaching or something. And he'd heard about this professor, too. Now, this man was not active in Campus Crusade. He was active in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. InterVarsity was not very big at Ohio State, but it did have a strong presence there. We cooperated with them and they with us. So he came to me one day. He says, I can't stand the fact that this professor is doing what he's doing, and I'm going to challenge him. And he's promised he'll flunk me if I do that. But he says, I want to challenge him to a debate. And so somehow this fellow did it, and he pulled it off. He persuaded him, says, will you debate Christianity in an open forum? Sure, I will. I'm not afraid to debate anybody on it. Well, they had on the staff of of InterVarsity, a, a man who had several PhDs and this kind of thing. His, name, his last name was Wolf. We got together and brought Dr. Wolf onto the campus to debate this professor. And a pretty good crowd turned out. And of course, in those days, that was in the height of the Vietnam era. And there was a or post Vietnam, uh, but there was a lot of hippies that went to school there at the time, and it was they were troublemakers in lots of the classes, so they showed up in big numbers for, for the debate and At first, they were just sort of chanting and praising the unbeliever, you know the anti god but in within a matter of the first fifteen minutes of that debate, Dr. Wolfe had so stated his positions for belief in god and the evidence for faith in god from creation and so forth so powerfully that this man could not respond to them he had no real ability to answer anyone that had spiritual knowledge and spiritual insight uh, and and dr wilf used the bible all through it he didn't Try to depart from scripture and say, and just get into a real philosophical discussion, you know. The Christians all left there feeling very exonerated. So foolish hearts become darkened, and professing to be wise, they become foolish. And then, notice verse 23, the challenge or the accusation by Paul here, by the Holy Spirit through Paul, and they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And then, not, and this of course is idol worship, but not only did they use the images of man to worship, but it says, and birds, and four-footed animals, and then he gets down, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. I want to tell you, Paul mentions it, I think, three times here. He uses the phrase, therefore, God gave them up. And the last thing you ever want is for God to give you up to your own passions and to your own uncleanness. Because once he gives you up, he has decided to take his Holy Spirit away from you and just let you indulge whatever you want to. There will be very few pangs of conscience, and people can go to very grave depths of e- iniquity and evil once God gives them up. You know, if if God's Spirit is working with us, we don't want to dive off the deep end in some horrible sin, or we don't want to get involved in something that's going to corrupt us. So therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among them, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Notice, not just a lie, the lie that God didn't deserve to be worshipped, the true triune God, but they started worshipping what? He worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And now Paul takes just a moment when he mentions the creator and he has to stop and do a benediction. Who is blessed forever, amen. <laughs> because he's going to keep plowing on in this dark underworld of wickedness here. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. So a second time, God gave them up, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. So. As a result of committing these shameful sins and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due to them, is what Paul says. That's the outcome. There's uh, comments at the bottom of the page here on this. Error means delusion. So Paul says they receive penalty of their error. Paul and the rest of the scripture is clear. To claim that homosexuality is natural or an alternative lifestyle is a delusion. Rather, it is unnatural, shameful, and unacceptable to God. Now, the next comment from verse 29, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. Sex, of course, is not evil, for it is a gift of God. But sex outside of marriage is immoral it violates God's law. After Paul finishes that discourse about the sexual sins that were so prevalent in his day and are very prevalent in our day, he goes on. The picture gets darker, believe it or not. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, notice they had knowledge, but they didn't like to retain. They didn't want to know about God because that put a cramp in their lifestyle. God gave them over to a debased mind. If you follow this carefully, each time God gives them over, it's to a lower level of lifestyle. At First, in verse 24, when it first says God gave them up to uncleanness, just all kinds of unclean activities and in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, and then he describes in full detail what that finally turns out to be. and then here in verse twenty six he says, "God gave them up to vile passion, and then finally, in verse twenty eight and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And a debased mind is a mind that's so twisted that it can't really think of good things. I remember working with students at Ohio State, and I think it's a rare student that's already gotten to the point that he can't have a conscience. One guy came to me and he said, you know, I am so sick of my life. And thank God he was, because my mind is so filled with sex and immoral behavior, he says, I can't take an exam, a final exam in a course without thinking about sex. Of course, I prayed for him. I did all I could for him because I felt that this was a demonic obs- obsession with him. He he truly had given himself up and therefore was receiving the penalty of his error. And so Paul says, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers. Now there's more yet to come, but i just like to examine a little bit of this. Uh, I want to reread something I read to you a moment ago. This comment on verse 29 at the bottom of the page. Sex, of course, is not evil for it is a gift of God, but sex outside of marriage is immoral for it violates God's law. Then it goes on to elucidate about covetousness. Covetousness is wanting something that belongs to someone else. It is a sinful passion which corrupts our desires. This is what covetousness does. I'm going to tell you, I believe the most common sin in America is covetousness. Now, there's lots of other sins. and One could say, oh no, it's got to be immorality and all the sexual sins, because that's what we see on the television. It's just thrown at us all the time. But in America, covetousness is very subtle. Oh, I just see somebody's car, and I've just got to have a car like that. Or I've just got to have this. I've just got to have that. And there's nothing inherently wrong in owning a car. We have to have one to get to work and, you know, go buy groceries and things like that. There's nothing wrong with wanting some of these things. But covetousness leads to so many other things. Covetousness is wanting things that belong to someone else, or that don't belong to us, but God has not given them to us yet. And so we're constantly wanting what God has not yet given to us. Which means, I become dissatisfied with what God has done for me. I don't look at all that He has given to me, I only focus on what He hasn't given to me. And so then I become a very negatively oriented person. So this note at the bottom of the page there goes on. It says covetousness is a sinful passion which corrupts our desires. It leads the soul to grasp for more regardless of the will of God. I'm going to have it whether God likes it or not, you know, and Oh, how many people have gone astray doing that? They just could not be satisfied with what God had given them at the moment. The object that they pursue may, in itself, be good. Like I said, a car. Oh, so covetousness! Covetous that they just—they not only buy a car, they buy one that's four or five times more expensive than they can possibly afford, and so they live under the constant debt of trying to pay for an extravagant automobile or if they covet, if a man covets another man's wife, he then falls into the sin of adultery, as the Lord Jesus told us. The note here goes on to say, uh, maybe it's even a job. Boy, how many people today are needing jobs. I've had so many talk to me in the last few weeks about either they were worried about losing their job or they had lost their job and desperately seeking one. Well, We need to seek a job. Everybody needs work. We need to earn an income. We have to do that. But if you covet a job so much that you you would do anything you could to undermine someone else to get their job, and there are a lot of people who do that kind of thing, then that leads to more sin. The motivation is personal pleasure, and the eventual outcome is always more sin. Then murder is mentioned in here. Murder may seem like it's far from us, the note says here. I know the people in St. Ignatius pretty well, and I don't know of a single one of them that I think would go out and commit murder. But murder, as this note says, is a child of anger. And anger is common to all. And we have to be careful about letting our anger run away from it. I often have anger brought to me in confession. It is a very live, real passion, a difficult thing to control, and a difficult problem for all of us if we allow our anger to grow. This sentence goes on, For sinful desire arouses anger. Anger eventually leads to hate, and hate in turn may lead to murder. Well, of course, we know all of these things. We have... Read cases in the newspapers about those kinds of things happen. I want to go ahead and finish the chapter. I may come back to this if I feel like I've got a few minutes to elucidate on it more. Notice, in addition to covetousness, maliciousness or malice, full of envy. Goodness, this is in verse 29 now. Murder, strife, deceit. Evil mindedness. In other words, it just, some people that, they can't think of anything good. Their minds are just so cluttered and, and overcome with evil thinking that they just think evil thoughts about everybody. They attribute to others their own motives and their own deeds. They are whisperers. That's an interesting word. Starts off gossiping, usually. A lot of gossip is spread by, did you know? And then you start telling somebody about so-and-so and this and that. And it's amazing what gossip can do to people. It can gravely injure people. So whispering is not a good thing. Then Paul goes on in verse 30. Not only are they people who with their whispering start gossip and hurt people by telling things that aren't really true about them. It says they are backbiters. A backbiter, someone, even if you try to, in genuine love, to say a word that might correct them, they turn around and eat you up. They snap you for even having said anything to correct their behavior. Backbiting is a very bad thing in God's sight. Haters of God. Here were people who at one time had some light about God, but now they're angry at God, and they blame God for all their misfortunes, and they hate God. Violent. It seems like every day's television news, I don't watch much except just the news, is full of some kind of violent happening. We live in a very violent age, and that spirit of violence just seems to have Crept into many people's minds and they want to get even, they want to get back. So, haters of God, violent, proud. We have pride today, <laughs> undue pride, overwhelming pride, boasters. Of course, a proud man is often a boastful man. He's boasting about his accomplishments or his achievements, and blah, blah, blah. Inventors of evil things. Not satisfied with just the ordinary sinfulness is going to invent something that's really sinful. Got to make it as evil as possible. Disobedient to parents. Whoa, now, Paul, getting a little too close to home there. (laughs) And, of course, we've all had those days in our lives when we were disobedient to our parents. It is laughable in a sense because... Today, it seems like disobedience to parents is so standard that it's expected among especially young adolescents and so forth, or we expect them to be disobedient to their parents, but I don't think God expects that, and somehow we need to raise our children in such a way that they are not disobedient. And then the next word is unloving, and this the way it's translated here. But if you go to the old King James uh, translations, it says without natural affection, and I checked it out in the Greek, and that is the root meaning here. It's what's manifested when you read these horrible things or see these horrible reports on the news about mothers or fathers that so abuse their children. This is their own flesh and blood, and yet they will do horrible things. It's without natural affection, is what St. Paul says. Just, just a plain old unbelieving, sinful guy or lady is going to have a little compassion for their own child, you'd think. And they ought to have a lot of it. And then not only uh, without natural affection, but unforgiving. This is a very big deal. We are to be a forgiving people, unmerciful Mercy is what we show to someone who is in dire consequences, usually, or in dire need. And mercy is to be shown to someone who has offended us or sinned against us. God is merciful to us, and we have certainly offended him, should we not be merciful to those who have offended us. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them isn't that awful we human beings not only do these things but we applaud others and even encourage them sometimes now i don't think any of us in this room are guilty of that but Honestly, I've seen so many cases of that, where, you know, having lived as long as I've lived, I've seen numerous instances where, in my my knowledge mainly, men encouraging other guys to do things that they knew were wrong. And in some cases, it results in horrifically bad things. winds up somebody getting killed all starting out just because they were being taunted to get back and get even or do this or do that it's an an awful thing so we human beings know the righteous judgment of God but we not only practice these things and that we know that those who practice such things are deserving of death, and see the number of things that God says People were stoned for. Why did God give such strict rules in the Old Testament? Because he knew the propensities of human beings. And if they didn't get checked early in life, then they grow into horrifically evil deeds or patterns of action. And so we live in a world that knows the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice these evil things are deserving of death, But not only do so many of our people do those same things, but they approve of those who practice them. Or if they don't do them, they egg someone else into doing them, approve of what they're doing. So the world is full of wickedness and unrighteousness. We need to do our part to push in the other direction, try to set examples of lives of purity and holiness and righteousness and love for God. And may that be true for all of us. Let's uh, close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we thank you, dear Lord, for the privilege of again studying from your Holy Word. We ask that though we have been studying about the dark side of the human nature and human practice, and that we will be encouraged to know that there are many opportunities for people to know the truth and that we will be a part of sharing the truth with others and that we can encourage those who have soft hearts to the truth and openness to the truth to continue to investigate, to seek to know the truth and to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ.
0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And that was Father Gordon Walker with Verse by Verse, A Journey Through the Book of Romans. We invite you to study along with Father Gordon with your own Orthodox Study Bible. And if you don't have an Orthodox Study Bible, we would encourage you to order one today at conciliarpress.com. That's conciliarpress.com. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported presentation of Ancient Faith Radio.